Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. This morning we are in Acts chapter 20, picking up in verse 7. And I'll be reading from verse 7 down to the end of the chapter. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Then he went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Troglilium. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews." How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, 
I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. Thank you, Chuck, for reading that. I want to share just a couple thoughts with you um, from the testimonies before I jump into the message. There was a theme, um, starting with Steve, came out big with, um, with Chuck, where being involved in people's lives sometimes leads to opportunity. With Steve, it was someone he had never met, but because he was there at the same time and they started talking, the guy had some deep thought that he uh, questioned that he needed to get out there. Um, Gail and I talked several times, have talked a number of times about relationships that seem strained, whether it's with um, extended relatives or, or people that we know through a neighborhood or through work. And what we, and the, and the question is, that comes up a lot is, should we go do such and such that would involve them, or should we go visit them, or whatever? And the thing that we come down to time and time again is that if we're not involved in their lives, we have no chance to impact them for Christ. If we're involved in their lives, we have some chance. Now, we have a lot of times with, with relatives and in relationships with other people where nothing comes of it in terms of spiritual conversation, but at least we're there, and the opportunity sometimes comes. And so I was just thinking of that during several of your testimonies. Uh, being involved in someone's life is an opportunity. Even Rodney with you and Steve getting together, opportunity for, to, I, I assume from what you said, it involved maybe studying the Bible, something like that. But uh, uh, when, we, when we're involved in life together, it's opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work through us and to encourage someone. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to share, Jimmy, in your testimony, it just reminded me of Proverbs 16:9, which says, "The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step." And uh, God intervened in a great way to give you really the desire of your heart, uh, even though the planning, in terms of what you thought you were doing with your job, was going to make you miss the funeral. So we have a faithful God. He just loves us so thoroughly and wants us to walk with him. Uh, having said that, let me start into the message here. We are in Acts. I want to give you a little bit of background in Acts 20. If you are here last week, you heard Bob go through the first uh, 16 verses of the chapter. And what we have here is a situation where Paul is in a hurry. 
He wants to be in Pentecost by, uh, um, he wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. Uh, one of the verses said that he left Philippi right after the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Days had come to an end. So he would only have uh, about 43 days from that point. It says he spent, I think, five days traveling over to Troas and, and then spent a week there, or maybe it was a week traveling and then five days there, something like that. So he's lost another 12. He's, he's got to get moving. He's also had uh, a, found out about a plot by the Jews against him. He's had a number of plots by Jews against him through his ministry. And for whatever reason, uh, I think it's likely because of that plot, it, Scripture doesn't actually spell it out for us, but he decides to, to split his traveling group into two parties. Some go by sea, some go by land. He goes by land back from from Greece up through Macedonia to Philippi, where he gets on a ship, and then he takes a ship to, to uh, Troas, but then he goes on land again while, they, while the rest of them continue by boat, and it's in Assos where they reunite again, and, and he's hurrying. And that last verse, uh, verse 16, got into the passage that we're going to be uh, talking about today, starting with 17. He's hurrying and doesn't want to spend time in Ephesus. It actually says doesn't want to spend time in Asia. Um, which is where Ephesus was. Um, so I want to show you on, on the map here because the terminology being used here is not terminology that, that we use nowadays. Um, this is Bob's map, but without the church building on it. Um, and you can see, real faint here, it says Turkey. This whole area that's modern-day Turkey, the majority of it, is what the Romans called Asia Minor. And the Romans had broken Asia Minor into provinces. It was six or seven provinces. And so this is a, a picture from the back of my Bible, and it shows color-coded for you the various provinces. So you can see the provinces that are being used. The point I want to make for you here is, is in terms of historical um, reliability, Luke the writer is using terms the Romans used. This is all happening in the Roman Empire, and it lends a bit of credence to it. We think of Asia as where? China, Japan, Korea, Singapore, India, way out that part. But Asia actually comes, the continent comes up and includes this. And it comes down here, and it goes here between Arabia and Egypt. This is Africa to the west of this finger of the Red Sea, both of these are fingers of the Red Sea. The main reach of the Red Sea is down here. This is Asia, is the continent. Well, the Romans called that Asia Minor, and I don't know, so you can kind of see it here in letters going straight across, Asia Minor, for the whole thing, that this uh, westernmost province they called Asia, and you can see the letters A, the S is right there, I, A, I. Uh, that's the province that they were in. And the other thing I want you to, to notice about this province is that it's got a lot of cities in it that are mentioned in the Bible and that you're familiar with. Ephesus is right here. Um, Colossae and Laodicea are right here. This is a letter to the Colossians. In that letter, he mentions a letter that he sent to Laodicea and that they should trade letters and read it in each other's churches. There's some other city names. Tell me... they. They're all, they should be familiar to you. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, 
Smyrna, Philadelphia, Ephesus I already mentioned, Laodicea. Who knows where do we see all of those names? What book of the Bible? Revelation. Revelation. The seven churches that God sends messages to, Jesus speaking to John, sends specific messages to, they are all in this Roman province of Asia. So Paul doesn't want to spend time in Asia. He's in a hurry. And so when he gets to Miletus, he still wants to say one last thing to the people in Ephesus. So he calls for the elders. And the elders come to meet him in Miletus. And that's why, where our whole passage, 17 through 38, is then going to take place. Now, um, as I jump into this, this whole, this whole passage is him speaking to elders. So there is a temptation for many of you to tune out because you're not an elder. I want to encourage you not to give in to that temptation. There are, I, I saw Bob and Marsha are on via, via Zoom, so we have four of us who are actually elders. This message is very much for the four of us. But the message is also for all of us because Paul is going to give testimony of the kind of life that he's lived. And so I, I challenge you as you're listening to be praying, talking to the Holy Spirit, and listening for what the Holy Spirit wants to lay on your heart from Paul's example. Because I can't do that. I'm going to go through the passage and talk about the key points that stand out to me about his testimony to these elders And then there's also the actual charge to the elders. But it's something between you and God for you to see how the life of this godly man in following hot after Christ, how there's something there that relates to you today. And there is, I believe, for every one of you. But you need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, okay, to know what is it for you. All right? So the question before I go into this list of things in Paul's testimony to them that arose for me in reading it is, why does Paul tell them these details? There is a charge he's going to give them where he's exhorting them to do some specific things. But he talks a lot about himself before he gives that charge. And even the charge itself is interwoven with him talking about himself. So in verse 25, he has said he doesn't expect... Is this related to me somehow? Okay, we'll pause for a second. Technology issue. Um, In verse 25, Paul tells them that he knows he's not going to see them again. And, and so um, right after that in verse 26, we hit, um, somehow I am in the wrong passage here on my Bible. Bear with me a second. Got into a different chapter. Okay, chapter 20 of Acts. So in 25, he tells them that he's not going to see them again. In 26, he says, I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. And, and to me... You may have a different key verse as you look at it, and that's okay. But this is a foundational claim in regard to his testimony that he's giving across a dozen or more verses here in Scripture. Are we good? Okay. Um, 
this is, a, this is to me the key verse of his testimony. His testimony revolves around this verse. He says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. And then he gives a why. In the next verse he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, or I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And what this is hearkening to um, is uh, it's drawing upon Ezekiel and the role of a prophet. And so I've got here two, the two key verses from Ezekiel, but I want to read as background for you what comes before that. This is in Ezekiel 33. And, and I really believe this is foundational to Paul's statement that I am innocent of the blood of all men. In Ezekiel 33, starting in verse 1, Scripture says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land, and he blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now, as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. Then the verses I have on the screen. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. This is something God says to Ezekiel, and the point is that when God lays something on the prophet's heart and mind to speak from his mouth, if he warns people, then he's not responsible in any way for what happens to them. But if he refuses to warn, he doesn't warn, God's viewing it as their blood is on your head because you did not warn them. And so Paul is drawing upon that when he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, because he has been giving to them the whole counsel of God. He hasn't held anything back. And in fact, back in verse uh, 21, he had said that, uh, no, it was in 20, I proclaimed to you, um, I, ha I kept back nothing that was helpful. So in other words, I proclaimed to you everything that was profitable. He'd said that in verse 20. And now here in, 20, in 27, he says, I've given you the whole counsel of God. So I'm innocent of the blood of every man. Now, there may be more to the why. This is not in this passage, but it seems kind of baked in that Paul is holding himself up as an example to these elders. Now, Paul is more than an elder. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was personally, visibly called by Christ, and he was given a special commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so that, that, that's a bigger thing. He was the first really great missionary of the Christian church. Um, 
But he also has been laboring over the churches that are formed just as an elder would labor. He has been the main one. Originally, he and Barnabas together. Later, he and Silas. On this third missionary trip, it's probably just him. He has been, as the Holy Spirit led him, choosing elders in every church. And he's been training those elders, I would assume. He's been teaching them. And we, see, we, don't, we don't have a verse that says somewhere that he trained the elders. But as you read this, it's baked in that he's been living a certain kind of lifestyle that the elders should emulate. And so we have several verses in Scripture. Now, 1 Corinthians, I'm going to quote from it several times in this message. Paul spent, Paul's going to say in this passage that he spent three years with them. Luke tells us over in Acts that he had spent at least two years and three months in Ephesus. That was in Bob's message two or three weeks ago. So 1 Corinthians was, yeah, here's what I want to get to. 1 Corinthians was written to the Corinthians while Paul was in Ephesus. It was in that two to three years that he's in Ephesus that he writes to the Corinthians. Okay? And so if you can think of it, while he's laboring with the Ephesians, which is what his testimony is about, his time with them in this passage, he's also writing things to the Corinthians that are reflecting very much his attitude that he's living out amongst the Ephesians. So in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. He's saying that to the whole church, not just to the elders. In Philippians 3.17, Philippians he wrote after this, after this Acts 20, it's, it's several years later from prison when he writes Philippians. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So same thing. You've seen my life. Imitate me. Also in Philippians, he says, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So the passage doesn't say that Paul is, saying, is telling them all this for them to imitate him, but it's something he's repeatedly said in letters, and it makes sense that why he's going to all this length with the testimony. He's holding up how he has been towards them as something that these elders should imitate. Okay, so to the list of items. The very first thing in verse 19 is that he has served the Lord. And he says, I've served the Lord with all humility. So I want to pause on the all humility part. Normally when you hear someone talking about themselves say, I am humble. What do you think? He's proud about his, hum about his humility, Steve said. Somebody said he's not over here. Yeah, you tend to not react well to someone talking positively about their own humility. Well, and, and to some extent, if you've read a lot of Paul, you see a bold man. In Galatians, he talks about standing up to the apostle Peter, calling him out on something. Um, you, you, you see him... Uh, boldly speaking to non-believers in Athens and in several other places. You, you see Scripture without telling us all of what he's saying, talking about how he contended with people and how he was in the marketplace telling people about Christ. He's bold. But I want to I just suggest to you that just because someone is bold and speaks with confidence doesn't mean that they do it necessarily out of pride. And so when Paul says he served them with 
He's serving the Lord with humility. This, to me, is the umbrella thing to his whole testimony that he's giving them. He is called as a servant of Christ, and in humility, he's serving the Lord. So he, he's human. He's going to err sometimes. But in general, that should be something that is seen through his life. And, and by the way, so I meant to say this earlier. As he's giving this testimony, I want you to note, he's saying this to people who could say, well, wait a minute, I don't agree with you on that because they have seen his life. He's talking about what they've seen. But there's no reflection of anybody saying, no, you're wrong about that. No, Paul, you're not right about this. And when we get to the end of it, I'm not going to dwell on the verses on the end, but they, they are grieving because he said he's not going to see them again. They pray together. Um, uh, there's no hint that he said anything in here that they would disagree with. So I just put that before you. As he's saying his testimony of how he's lived among them, it's apparently things that they're going to agree with. They've seen how he's lived. He's not saying things that are a big stretch. There's no evidence for that. Okay. So when he says, with all humility, that got me looking for an example or two. And I want to suggest that in his letter to the 1 Corinthians, we see, that we see a type of humility that we don't necessarily always think about. This passage says, this is 1 Corinthians 2, the first five verses, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, in this passage, this sounds like a humble person. He's coming in fear, in weakness, in trembling. Uh, A few weeks ago, Bob had preached on Paul's message in Athens, and Gerard had had a really good question during the question and answer time about whether Paul uh, changed his methods some after that, his presentation. And I don't think we, we can say for sure that he did. It could be that, that he um, learned from that. And I think there is, there is some good credence to he changed tactics when he got to Corinth. It could be that he changed back to how he had been before then. It's not necessarily that it, that it was new for him. But... When he gets down to here, uh, uh, the, the thing, I'm going to read in a minute what Gerard had brought up, that, that Paul goes to Corinth and he, he says that I, I decided to, to stick to Christ, to him crucified. I'm paraphrasing, but I'll, I'll read his words in a minute. When you get down to this last verse, though, he says, "...in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." that your face should not be on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When you think, when you read in demonstration of the spirit of the, uh, and of power, you may not fit in this bucket, but most of us are probably in a bucket where the first thing we think of, demonstration of the spirit and of power, is going to be signs and miracles, signs and wonders. That's what we think of. I want to suggest to you that that's not what he means here in 1 Corinthians 2. What he means here is a reliance on the Holy Spirit and the power of God to convict people of sin, to lead them to faith, and to change their lives. 
And to substantiate that, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 1, I'm going to read to you verse 21 through 25. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now he's just said in chapter 1 that the Jews ask for signs. When he then talks about how he went to them, if demonstration of the Spirit and of power meant signs, it kind of undercuts the whole argument that he's making here in chapter 1. So that's evidence for you if you're just going to go by the text that comes before this passage. After this passage, what does he talk about? The rest of chapter 2, he talks about how spiritual things are appraised by those who have the Spirit. We need the Spirit to understand spiritual things. He doesn't talk about miracles. Now, we do believe in signs and wonders and miracles. We have a God who can do that. Scripture is full of examples of Jesus doing miracles, of Peter and of Paul doing miracles. But I don't think that's what he means here. What he means here is the demonstration of the Spirit bringing people under conviction as he preaches Christ crucified in chapter 1. The other piece of textual evidence I'd hold up for you is that if you read at the Acts account while he's at Corinth, there's no mention of miracles. That doesn't mean that by itself that there weren't any, but there's no mention of it. As you read through the rest of Corinthians, this first letter, he mentions miracles really, I think, only twice. One is that it is a gift of the Holy Spirit to do attesting miracles. That's in 1 Corinthians 12. And the second is in the love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says that if you're doing miracles but you do not have love, that's not worth much. Love trumps it. So the whole theme of what he's talking about here, this is a humility where he's relying on God to change people. Okay? So I think that's what he's talking about in Ephesians when he says, serve the Lord with all humility. Uh, Later in 1 Corinthians, by the way, He says this in chapter 15, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. I like this because it's a grace and working hard sandwich. Grace of God is what made him who he is. He worked hard, harder than the others, he says. But it wasn't my hard work. It was the grace of God. It's a beautiful thing. So anyway, so he served the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials. The trials he's mentioning here are trials coming from enemies outside the church. Um, The tears could be at this point because of just the anguish in enduring. But he's going to mention tears later in the passage where he talks about admonishing, warning the Ephesian Christians day and night for three years with tears. The tears also indicate love, that he's serving the Lord with humility, with love for them, and with endurance. So in verse 20, he kept nothing back 
that was helpful for them. I want to talk for a minute about the Greek word that's used here because kept back is kind of a little tame um, in my view. The, the Greek word here is um, hupostello. trying to find my notes. And um, yeah, hupostello. Hupo means under or below. Stello means to keep back or to set fast. And so um, when you put these together, the idea is to withhold under or out of sight. And, and, and it, it, it's stronger than just, than just keeping back. It's like keeping back to hide, to shrink back under. Shrink is a good word. Some translations use that. To cower. And so he's saying, I didn't do that. Anything that was helpful or anything that was profitable to you, I told you about it. I taught it to you. He taught publicly and privately. So his teaching was not just something that was one-on-one where maybe he's a little worried about lots of people hearing it. He taught publicly when he had the opportunity. I think the publicly means to the church is the main thing. He's got other verses in here about evangelism where he's obviously proclaiming Christ in public to non-believers. But this, the emphasis here is to the church. He's teaching them both corporately and he's teaching them house to house. house, to house. An elder imitating this would do similar things, would be con- just as concerned. I guess what I want to emphasize here, sometimes in a church you have leaders of a church where preaching is what they major on, but they don't really do much else. They spend all their time preparing to preach. Paul, Paul did that, but he also was meeting with whoever would meet with him in the house, in their houses, one-on-one, in families, in small groups. He was, his desire was not to be seen as the public preacher as it was to impact people's lives where they grow in their relationship with the Lord. That's the significance to me of both publicly and privately. It wasn't just public for reputation. He was willing to talk to anybody anywhere and did so, trying to encourage them in their walk with Christ. Uh, 21, he was a bold and consistent witness to non-believers, and I think 22 through 24 kind of uh, comes out of that because he switches to present tense. He's been talking about how he has lived and ministered among them, but flowing out of saying that I, I testified to the Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, there you got the nutshell of the gospel. So he's testified to them about the gospel. And in 22 he says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. And he goes on from that. Um, but he talks in 24 about so that he may finish his race in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So I think 22 through 24, he switches to present tense as example of what he's just said. He's been a bold and consistent witness, and he's now headed to Jerusalem for the cause of witnessing for Christ. Uh, he, in talking about the Holy Spirit testifying to him, saying that bonds and afflictions wait him, chains and tribulations await him, um, we haven't been given any insight yet in Luke's account. That more is going to come. Bob will talk about that in fu- future uh, messages as the Holy Spirit speaks prophetically through a few people. But Paul seems already at this point to have been told by the Holy Spirit of imprisonment that's to come, and he seems, I think, to already know he's going to be headed to Rome eventually, and that's for the cause of Christ. 
26, he talks about being innocent of the blood of all men and that he had declared the whole counsel of God. Um, that word counsel in the Greek is the word boule, and it means purpose, advice, will. In the sermon notes, I gave you just a few. There's a whole bunch of verses in the New Testament that use it. But I gave you a few verses if you want to look at examples of that. Uh, verse 31, he warned people night and day for three years. Now that comes out of part of the charge to the elders, but, um, but he's again dropping into testimony mode when he says it. I'll come back to that again when I get to the charge to the elders. But here you see his passion, his love for the people, night and day. Any time that there was a problem, he wanted to be there for the, for the other believers. Any time. And because of some of what's going to come up in the charge, I think that a lot of times this had to do with people getting off track. Potential false teaching, potential doubt, misunderstanding, um, just fleshly sin patterns that lead people astray, all the same kind of things that happen to us in our Christian walk. He was wanting to go and warn people and admonish them, whether it was night or day, to try to keep people on the right track. You really see a heart for Christ, whom he's serving at the top up here, being manifested through Christ-like love for all the people that he's interacting with. He wants their best, not his best. Uh, and then you see that come out in verse 33. He's coveted no one's wealth. He hasn't made a living off of them. Now, we know from other verses in Scripture, it is okay for, in an organized church for the church to support one or more of the pastors or elders so that they can focus on that service to God. But Paul didn't want to do that. And he made it a point that he was working with his hands. We know from earlier in Acts he was a tent maker. He was working to provide for his own needs as well as the needs of his team. This comes out in 34 and 35. And even for other people, he says, for the weak in verse 35. And he, and he quotes something that Christ had revealed to him. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So here we're seeing... The heart of Paul reflected in this testimony where his concern is for everybody else, wanting them to be right with the Lord, strong in faith, on the right track in their beliefs, living for Christ. By the way, on this thing about working hard to provide for needs, it's to these same Ephesians that five to six years later, five to seven years later, from prison in Rome, he's going to write, the letter to the Ephesians. And in chapter 4, verse 25, he says, I think it's 425. Let me look real quick, lest I get it wrong. He tells them, it's in the part where he starts talking about putting off old ways and putting on new ways. And in 4, verse 28, he says, Let him who steals, steal no longer. That would be the sin, to steal. Steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has a need. Same idea. Work hard to meet your own needs so you're not taking from someone else. And then give so you have extra and you can give to help someone else. So these are all things that Paul says about how he has lived and ministered for two to three years 
to the Ephesians. And they don't challenge any of this. The elders don't. By the way, the elders are the ones who would most know if he's been doing this. Okay? So I just pause here a moment, and I hope that you will pray right now, be talking to the Lord, asking him, what here is most relevant to me if I were to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ? Okay, now, I want to draw out kind of a consolidation of a few things from that. Scripture doesn't say the title I got up at the top, but I see a model for a good disciple maker in this testimony by Paul. So I've just consolidated a few things. Number one, a good disciple maker serves the Lord in humility and in spite of trials. He's an example of a faithful disciple living for Jesus. That's important. Discipling someone is all about helping them learn to follow Christ the way you follow Christ. So you've got to be the authentic, real deal. And they often catch more than what you actually teach just by seeing how you live. So being an example of a faithful disciple living for Jesus and being steadfast, that ties in with in spite of trials, continuing on, enduring in how you follow Christ. Number two is teaching everything that is helpful and declaring the whole counsel of God. That, this is why in our church we choose in the main worship service to teach through books of the Bible. We occasionally, rarely, do a topical series. More often, topical is in Sunday school. The reason we do that in our main teaching time is because when you're just teaching through the Word of God, you're much more likely to teach the whole counsel of God instead of tending to major on the things that really resonate with the speaker. Because every, everyone who teaches, who speaks, has certain favorite topics, and you tend to gravitate in that way. But if you're teaching through the Word of God, you're much more likely to teach the whole counsel of God. This includes warning, exhorting, urging people, and it includes the public and private thing. Number three is to be a bold and consistent witness to non-believers. That is the starting point with a disciple is someone becomes a follower of Christ, so they're a convert. And then you try to help them grow in their faith, and they become a disciple. And then number four is being a hard worker, providing for needs, giving to others. Okay, moving to the charge to the elders. There are two explicit exhortations here. The first is to take heed or to be on guard. That comes from verse 28 and 30. Uh, and it concerns all the flock as well as the elders. So it's interesting to note, he says, take heed to yourselves because the elders are not protected. They are not immune. That would be the better word. They are not immune from going astray. Elders need to take heed to themselves. And he says that before he says, and to all the flock. That actually applies to every one of you, even though you're not an elder. You need to take heed in your walk with Christ that you not be led astray. There's so many things that, that can be led, lead you astray. The world can tell you lies, and your thinking get changed in a bad way and lead you astray. Your flesh 
can rise up in regard to some desire, some temptation, and you start just giving into it over and over again, and it leads you astray. You start putting how I feel or what I want ahead of truth that you know from God. Anyway, take heed, be on guard. That's for the elders and for all the flock. Why? Well, he says in verse 30... Verse 29, that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then in verse 30, he says, even from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So you've got two threats. You've got wolves from without, and you've got false teachers from within. And the elders are the ones who are supposed to guard, about, guard against that, protecting the flock, protecting the church. Um, Jesus, this word wolves, by the way, yeah, this word wolves, it's used elsewhere in the Bible, and here's one of them. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It's a metaphor for people who are cruel, greedy, um, destructive, merciless. And so we need to guard against such. Uh, By the way, in Paul saying, I know that these things are going to happen, if we think about what happened with the Ephesian church, Gnosticism is growing. Paul has addressed some things related to Gnosticism, early forms of it in some of his letters. But John is going to write 1 John, taking on full-blown Gnosticism some years after this. And... If we fast forward another 500 to 700 years, Islam's going to rise up in this part of the world. And there's going to be a whole lot of people who, under threat of a sword, are going to convert to Islam to save their necks. And today, if you go to modern Turkey, into that western province, which used to be the Roman province of Asia, there's not many Christians there. What churches are there are small and are largely persecuted. So it's a very real warning that Paul was given. Okay. Um, Second part in verse 31 is to watch and warn. Because these savage wolves from without and false teachers from within are going to arise, what the elders are supposed to do is watch. Be on the alert. It's an active watching where you're ready to take action, which comes later in the verse where he says, remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day. So it's a watching and a warning. That's what elders are supposed to do. By by the way, in these charges to the elders, in the full teaching of the New Testament, there's more things elders are supposed to do, but this is what Paul is concerned about as he leaves the church in Ephesus. Now, there's a couple of implicit exhortations, and by implicit, they're not imperative words that Paul's saying, but there's things that I think are reasonable to draw out um, here for elders. And the first one comes out of verse 32. After having talked about these dangers that are coming and why they need to be on guard and they need to watch and warn, He says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Well, 
It's interesting to me and it's comforting that after having talked about the dangers to come, Paul says, I'm commending you to God. Because it's ultimately God and His Word and His grace that protects us. God is our Savior from sin. God is our Savior from the savage wolves. God is our Savior from the false teachers. And so that means that we need to keep our focus and allegiance on God. And I'm talking about for elders here, although it would apply to you too in your walk with God. But elders need to keep their focus and their allegiance on God and not go astray into being wedded more to something else. Okay, then the last thing is his example. In verse 34 and 35, he says, You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who are with me. Now, nowhere here does he say what I said back near the beginning of the message, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's in other letters of his, okay? But he does at this point basically say, you know how I ministered to other people, and in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you you must, so he's saying, you do what I did, what I've showed you, you must help the weak. Remember the words of Jesus. If you choose, you can take that and then go backwards through his testimony. These are all things to emulate. So I need to work to provide for my needs so I'm not a burden to others and also for the needs of others. Be a giver. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Test God on that promise. That's a promise of Jesus Christ given to us through Paul. More blessed to give than to receive. See if you don't well up with joy when you're generous. All right. So elders, we have questions for elders. There are four of us. Are we on guard, watching, and warning? It can be easy to fall into just trying to shepherd our little flock and ignore what happens in the world around us. But the people in our church are also in the world. Are we on guard, watching and warning? This is important. This, by the way, also applies internally to false teaching. When we have things with false beliefs among us in the church, we try to address that in private with the people where we find out they have a belief that's off kilter from Scripture. And in the time that most of you have been in the church, there are a few of you who we haven't had something like that, but we have had a few cases where there has been what we considered false teaching. And we have dealt with it in ways where hopefully you never even realized it. But that's a delicate matter. And it is something that we're, we're concerned about, we're watching out for. Because we want all of us to be following in the whole counsel of God, not drifting outside of it. Also for us elders, do we sometimes shrink back? You know that word, hupustella, it really does mean to shrink. To shrink, you kind of get small. My sister-in-law, Sandy, um, who's in Florida and zooms in for most of our messages, 
She's in Australia right now, so they're not, she's not on Zoom today. But she was telling Gail and I, actually sent us a picture. She has a Labrador Retriever. It's about 70 pounds, decent-sized dog. But it is absolutely petrified by thunder. And she sent us a picture. They had a thunderstorm, and it had run into the center of their house into a closet and had gotten down as small as it could, down under some clothes and, you know, hanging clothes and some up against a cabinet. She sent us a picture of this dog all down in the tiny wad. That's shrinking back. We are not to do that. Do we sometimes? We need to not do that. Are, this also for the elders. Are we declaring all that is profitable? Apart from the church, there are times where people know something profitable to someone else and they don't share it. You could run into that at work. Sometimes it's legitimate. Competition as athletes. You know, the great athletes, they don't necessarily share tricks of the trade with their competition. Okay? But in the church, we're not to be that way. It's not like at work where you're vying for a promotion. Okay? And even there, there's lots of room where you represent Christ more if you're caring about the good of other people. But we in the church, we're not in a race to be more spiritual to someone else. And we elders, more than anyone else, need to be declaring all that is profitable, that helps people grow in their faith. For everybody, how do you view the role of elders? This is an important question because particularly in conservative Christian circles where we are people of the word, we have personal relationship with him, born again, the Holy Spirit's in us. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. I have my own relationship with God. There can be a tendency to fall into a long-term pattern of, I don't really need spiritual leadership. I've got the Holy Spirit. i got the Bible. And there is validity to what I just said. There's validity to I have my own relationship with God and I've got the Bible. But there's also plenty in Scripture about being humble, about how iron sharpens iron. And here we've just walked through a passage where Paul doesn't take time to go speak these things to the whole church. He calls for just the elders. So you need to think, I challenge you to think about how you view the role of elders. And you may be thinking, well, the elders are all across the board in various churches. That's true. Which is actually an issue for us whenever we nominate and vote on elders at our annual meeting. We need to be choosing elders who are men of God, hot after Christ, as far as we can tell, meet the biblical requirements and are committed to doing the things we see elders doing. But it is a valid critique if it's going through your head right now. I've been in churches where the elders coveted other people's wealth. And here, depending on the form of church, you might substitute in place of elders, pastor or deacons, okay? Because there are some forms of church where they don't call them elders, all right? But um, how do you view the role of elders? Paul is stressing it as an important thing. And if it's important, the next thing is do you desire oversight and admonishment? Again, conservative Christian circles, I have the Bible, the Holy Spirit's in me. 
Plus, if I add in the normal human pride, I don't want oversight. I don't want admonishment. I'm okay. But we often can't see our own faults. God gives us spouses to help us understand that. And I don't mean that as a joke. That's, that's real. God gives us spouses to help us increase in Christ-likeness. But do you, do you want eldering for you? That's important to think about. Because if it's good elders, they want your best. And over some time with them, you should be able to see that is really what they want. They want your best before the Lord in your relationship with Christ. If that's not what they want, then you have legitimate reason probably to go find a church where the elders do want your best. I hope, I pray that we are a church where that's what we four elders want. But if you follow the logic of all of what Paul's teaching, in humility as a servant of Christ, not as an elder, just as a believer, I should want some degree of oversight and admonishment. I should want some degree, because there's positive angles of this. Oversight is not always a negative. Oversight is what can help get questions answered so I can do things the right way or head the right way. Okay, and I picked admonishment because of some of Paul's words here when he talks about warn. Some translations say admonish. But there's positive sides, too, to the eldering of encouraging people in their faith. Barnabas, I just love this verse about Barnabas. When he goes to the church at Antioch, it's in uh, Acts 11. Um, When he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with all, to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. That is good eldering. Encouraging them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And so that's where I want to end. Is there a need to change the way you think and therefore the way you act? Let me pray. And we'll sing a hymn. Father, thank you for this message in Acts. Please let people hear from you, from the scriptures. Let them leave remembering something you've said more than things that I've said. And please be glorified in each of our lives. Thank you that you love us. Help us to, to, to be true with resolute heart to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.